0: Are you looking to get more birdies on your scorecard? In today's new series on the Chain Clinkers Disc Golf Podcast, we are starting our Seeing Green series, where we're sitting down with some pros, talking about their game, how they're getting more birdies on the course, and how you can do the same. Today, we sit down with Casey White, and he shares with us how he has grown not only his brand to new levels, but his game has also improved, how he has become a more consistent, and versatile disc golfer which will allow you to also do the same let's get into it right
1: now hey i'm casey white and you're listening to the chain clankers podcast Welcome in, everybody, to the Chain Clankers Disc Golf Podcast,
0: presented by Upper Park Disc Golf. In this episode, they want to tell you about how they play different. At Upper Park Disc Golf, they recognize the importance of playing differently and striving to be creative within the game. They believe that playing different means exploring new styles of play, taking risks, and embracing the challenge of the unknown. They also see it as an opportunity to learn new techniques, push themselves to become better players, and find new ways to enjoy the game, and you can enjoy The game with a new Upper Park Disc Golf bag. They've got some amazing bags out there ranging from the Pinch Pro all the way to the Rebel. It does not matter what your skill level is. There's a bag that will fit your game using promo code CLINKERS10 at checkout. Saves you 10% and it helps our brand as well. Today, very excited to be sitting down with someone we've already had on the podcast before, had a fantastic conversation, excited to explore it further. This is somebody who's grown in popularity. And if you watch any kind of disc golf media, which I assume you do since you listen to this podcast, you probably know Casey White. He's inside the top 60 players in the world right now. He's got over 22,000 YouTube subscribers, 30,000 Instagram followers. He's had that amazing amazing tilt shot that i feel as though everybody has seen casey white how are we doing tonight man
1: i'm doing good just uh hanging out in augusta georgia playing one of my favorite courses in the country almost every day
0: that's awesome man how is your preparation for champions cup changed this year compared to last year being it's you know now it's the second time we're coming to the course
1: um actually it hasn't changed at all i i came into last year as the new player at WR Jackson because they dropped it off the tour in 29 after 2019 and that was before I was on tour so I had never played the tournament before the Hall of Fame Classic and of course it takes a couple of years off but then they announced they're bringing it back in 2022 so last year coming into the tournament I knew that a lot of other players had way more experience on this course than I did so I needed to come in and really get my foot in the door before anybody else and and really familiarize myself with the course, play my own game. Don't worry about how people played this whole three years ago. Worry about how I play it as Casey white right now. And I'm basically doing the exact same thing I did last year because I felt like it worked out pretty well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, Kind of getting that extra practice. Do you feel as though it helps coming into events like this, and maybe it's more valuable to take an extra week or two to learn those courses where the majors are being held at, compared to, you know, I'll I'll use DDO as it's in my backyard pretty mm-hmm. much. You know, DDO is it's a great event. It's on the elite series, but it's not a major. It's not worlds. So, I mean, last year it was, yeah, but, but you know, yeah, yeah. It, it it's not it's not one of the four that you have to get this year. Is the preparation different? Is the pressure different at this event? Or is it, hey, just another weekend, I just got extra time to learn the course?
1: I think the reason it is like the way I rank it as far as how much I need to prepare and how much time I need to give myself on the course before it's game time really just comes down to the fact of how much I truly care about how I perform on a course like this. And W.R. Jackson, I really couldn't ask for a course that suits my game better. Long, technical, in the woods. Basically every single hole is gettable for a player of my distance kit caliber. And just knowing exactly the shots to throw, what shots not to throw, at a course like Emporia, you can see, because it's drawn with a painted line, the shots to throw and the shots not to throw. There's nothing else to see there, so like, that that's basically the simplest, like the simplest way I can put it, is that WR Jackson, you can play two rounds and never even come close to the same spot, but maybe shoot the same score, or maybe even a better score, even though you felt like you were in weirder spots. And Emporia Country Club, you're either in bounds or you aren't.
0: Yeah, that's that's very true, and I feel like this is a course where we can see a lot of those players who maybe we don't see on lead card every week really start to make a name for themselves and pop up and maybe win one i think a good example from last year is gavin babcock who had a Mm -hmm. fantastic run and then you know plays really good here gets all the exposure hits that amazing ace for all the cash takes a shirt off his popularity explodes later on in the season right so like what does it take to be successful at a technical course like this when you leave the course on sunday what would define a good round for you?
1: Oof. A good round basically just comes down to missed opportunities. i played a couple rounds out here, and one of them I actually shot pretty hot, and I had a double bogey and a bogey on the front nine. And then I shot another round bogey free, but shot three strokes worse. But, like, the one that I shot bogey free, even though it was three strokes worse, I had more misfires off the tee and was making incredible par saves. So that it didn't really feel like I was like really out of it. It was just like that was the hand I was dealt, and I just I, I dealt with it. I, I overcame and just did what I had to do to get on to the next hole. Where in that like in that heater round, even though I had a couple bogeys, it was like all right. Like I just had like my my foot on the gas and just kept on chipping back away to make sure that I kept in it. But when it comes to a tournament. It's really tough because sometimes you can have a round like that where you went bogey-free, you made great par saves, you you scrapped up a couple birdies where you could, but then you look at the scoreboard and realize that not everybody else had as hard of a time on the course as you did, even though you performed pretty well.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I kind of want to talk a little bit maybe about the headspace of that. I, I'll, you know, pull on myself, for example. I, I feel as though... taking those two scenarios, shooting better but having the bogeys, I feel like I'd rather take that over the, I got off the tee poorly, now I'm Mm -hmm. fighting to get my par, fighting to get my par. I feel like when you have those moments and the the positive chemical release in your mind of birdie, 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 okay, I took a bogey, it's okay, just had Mm -hmm. three in a row. Birdie, birdie, okay, took a double is what it is, whereas when you go par, 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 oh my Gosh, I was such a pain to get that par. Such a stressful par, yeah, for you mentally, what is what is better for you? Is it those capturing those stressful pars or is it you know shooting hot, but you kind of have a little bit of red on the scorecard?
1: man, that's actually a question I've been asking myself a lot because I mean, in past years, I have always prided myself on the clean scorecard. Like, that is the only goal is clean scorecard, and I'm good enough to get a couple birdies here and there, but as long as I don't have bogeys, I'm going to be happy for the day. But then, like, I'll go out and shoot a scorcher, but I had, whatever, seven pars in a row, and I'm like, okay, like, that's fine, but say that I shot the exact same round sprinkle in one bogey, I'd be like, that was so stupid. Like, I can't believe that I got a bogey. You know what I mean? I wouldn't be happy about the round.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. So, does that also maybe kind of lead to maybe a mentality shift and always going for it? Yes. Like you exactly. might as well run that putt. You exactly. might as well try to hit that sneaky gap. Like you might as well go for it because at least you're trying. You're not just limping to the finish line.
1: It's uh, it's play with fire, but definitely walk in the line with that. Of like, I found myself doing that kind of stuff in Waco. Like, oh well, you're a little out of position, but even though it's a death putt you are 50 feet for birdie and this is a hole that you want a birdie so might as well go for it and then that birdie turns into a bogey and like those those types of battles definitely as far as just like who i who i think that i am as a player where i used to just be the bogey free guy, no matter what just don't get bogeys where now i'm like well i'm good enough to score on this hole i'm good enough to score on every single hole at wr jackson so and there's not a single hole that i'm not going to be trying to get the birdie because that's what i know i'm capable of
0: yeah absolutely and something that i just got done watching the full swing pga tour documentary series kind of like f1 drive to survive on netflix Mm -hmm. and it kind of highlighted a little bit about you know the winners winning three million dollars at augusta for the masters and you know 50th place is still probably bringing home 50 to 75k i mean it's not 3 million but it's still a lot of money to people like you and i and so i kind of thought about that in disc golf and you know maybe you in the position you're in now your brands obviously are doing way better Mm -hmm. you're more linked with disc mania i'm not exactly a pro and you know what each person makes at each event for what place they get. But from what I've looked at, there's really not a whole lot of variety. Once you get outside the top 20 ish, you were maybe talking a couple hundred dollars difference. So has it been a little bit freeing, have some things off the course that are helping you financially allow you the availability to be like, Hey, I'm going to run this putt and we're going for the win. We're trying to finish higher up on the leaderboard instead of being like, well, I got to play it safe because I got to get 58. That way I cash and I can get to the next stop and get gas on the way.
1: The reason I'm laughing so hard is because you're literally just like speaking my, you're speaking my lifestyle. Like I actually just recently went on a podcast with Andrew fish And we were talking about how I came out with a fire in 2021 and was, like, a great player for a very, like, whatever, couple weeks. And nowadays, it's, like, I treat myself much better as a person as far as, like, when I get off the course, I don't beat myself down until I fall asleep and it's ready to go the next day. I get off the course, I let everything go, and I live my life happy and free. But it's because not every dollar matters as much anymore. Where when I was on the course before, yes, I was playing with high intensity. And yes, I might have had my best performances of my career. But the person that I was while I was on the course and after I got off the course was not the person I wanted to be. Because I treated every single stroke as if it was the end of my life because every dollar mattered.
0: Yeah, I can just imagine how stressful that makes playing the game, and then also how much mental strain that had to put on you. Because it's like you get off a hole two, you hit the cage, and now you're getting a par when everyone else on the card got a birdie. And it's like, okay, well, now I'm one stroke of these four. Who yeah. else am I one stroke back? Okay, well, dang, now I went out of bounds two holes later. And I feel like those mental miscues just keep adding up and adding up where when you're able to just let them go, it's got to lead to higher success.
1: And that's actually the weirder thing is Um, I remember the first tournament of 2022, the Las Vegas challenge, I came out with this mentality of, I, it was my first year traveling in my van all by myself with just nothing to do but play disc golf and hang out with my friends. And I attacked that weekend with just this glorious mindset of like, what happens on the disc golf course does not dictate how much I love my life. Like I'm going to love my life regardless. And like, I'm going out and I'm hitting a basket and I'm just like shrugging it off and then like i'm airballing a putt but i'll just make the comebacker and just be like whatever should have made the first one and it actually led to my best performance in vegas at 25th but then i found myself as the season went on like i'm like am i just like sleeping on like the course like am i just like so nonchalantly just like throwing the disc even though i know that I get better every single time I go out there. Like, I'm better than the person I was yesterday. But to then overlap the tournaments exactly, like the Texas Swing, Waco, Belton, Texas States, like, and I wasn't actually improving. Like, yes, my mindset was improving, but the scoreboard was telling me no. So it was like a a battle between winning my mental... I wouldn't even say my mental game, just my mentality at life versus winning on the scoreboard. Like it was like, well yeah, I'm happy and I'm I'm really proud of myself for not like beating myself down for the rest of the day because I like maybe didn't shoot three strokes better like I should have. But at the same time, like how happy are you staring at a seventieth place finish one stroke out of cash? You know what I mean? Like how happy does that make you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I can get that. And I think just to kind of draw it back to the amateur real quick, I think this is a really good point of saying that if you're going out and playing these C-chairs every weekend, right? And you're playing not in the pro division, even if you are playing in the pro division, that money in the pro division or those merch discs or hoodie or whatever you're going to get from winning is truly not life or death. Like, you know, you're out there to have fun and see yourself improve, which mm-hmm. I think is super important, where if you're, you know, worried about that bogey on hole 2, you still have 16 holes left to go. I mean, you got you got to keep fighting and keep going. And so, let's talk a little bit about how that has shifted in your game right you know where are you now with that you know if you see yourself go three four weekends in a row of okay haven't really been playing too well maybe i kind of had a blip here and i didn't do as well as, as i expected how do you get back into the lab and kind of fix that and resolve that
1: you know for me it's like a whole mental thing stepping into the week of the tournament. So. Las Vegas, I missed the cut for the first time since 2019. And Waco, I missed cash for the third year in a row. But the first two years in a row, I missed it by a stroke. And I thought that that was just the most unbelievable thing ever. While this year, I missed it by way more than a stroke. And now it's like, that was like an eye-opening thing. And coming into Austin, I haven't cashed in a pro tournament yet this year. I knew that Austin was a brand new course. I have no history on it, so I'm not going to just... Act like it's gonna be this great thing, but I'm also not going to just like hate it because I want to hate it. So I just went with a very open mentality, played the course, just like kind of told myself, like, all right, yeah, you can play this course like good enough. Like we'll we'll see what it looks like on the scoreboard when the you know when the tournament runs around. And after the first round, I was in 19th place, and I didn't even feel like I did that awesome. So like, there was no no harm there, and I felt like that had a lot to do with the fact that I had very low expectations and didn't really want to know what score I was capable of out there because I wanted to just see what the leaderboard told me as far as what a good score was.
0: Yeah, and so how can you kind of apply this toward? the rest of the season, you know, when we get to courses you have played before and played last year, maybe you didn't do as good as you mm-hmm. wanted, or maybe you know you can do better this year after playing it again, kind of how the, how I'm feeling with WR Jackson in yep. the Champions Cup. H- how do you apply that to these upcoming events?
1: Man, it's really tough when we're playing an event that I really just don't love the course, like, and I'd played it before and I don't love the course, whether it's because I think that, like, the OB is, like, unnecessary or because, like, my body just hates the course. Like I am literally throwing a distance driver as hard as I can every single throw of this tournament. Like I'm just not going to be able to feel like, like it's, it's some players will say like, I won't sign up for an event if I don't believe I'm capable of winning. And like some of these courses out here on tour, like, uh, the one at OTB, the, the super, super long golf course layout. Like it feels like, yeah, I mean the, me winning that tournament feels like a very long stretch. Like I'm literally throwing my arm off. But a course like W.R. Jackson or a perfect example for that would be Idlewild. Because looking at a course like Idlewild, that should be a course that I'm like, yeah, let me get in the woods. Let me let me carve up the lines. Let me throw sidearms, you know, shape shots. But then I back-to-back years, I've missed cash. So that's a weird one where I feel like maybe that one was just like a couple of stakes that just put me off that off that map and maybe a couple of different hole strategies here and there throughout the course, because I remember last year at Idlewild, what I would consider have been three toughest gaps on the course to hit. I remember peering them perfectly every single round, but every single round I, I, I ended up messing it up and I think I shot over par on like all three of those holes. And I remember telling a lot of people about that. And I'm like the fact that I went in with that confidence and executed, but then once the, hard part was done. I did it finish the job. It's just like a little bit of laziness. So it's a more thing about like staying sharp and not taking things for granted and always always like appreciating and uh uh you know not expecting to be perfect. Like, oh of course I just laced that gap. I know I'm capable of it. Like, oh yeah. You just put yourself down in the fairway. Now just freaking park this thing. Easy upshot. You know what I mean oh all I got is this little chipper, and then I just whack it into a tree. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about Discmania and maybe how their plastic will be helping you more this year comparatively to last year. Over the last couple of years, there's been the transition to them making their own discs. The Italian plastic comes to mind for for me as well as now the Horizon plastic that has come out. I have not been able to throw the Horizon plastic yet because I just have one of the Simon Zott Doombird 4s. And I don't want to throw it. Don't throw though it. I know it looks like a good disc, but I really I don't want to throw no, it. No, you
1: shouldn't throw and... it. You should hold on to it.
0: Okay, good. I'm glad I've got some backup because I've had some folk around town me like, it's just a disc, just throw it. But I, I don't know. I feel like that's a, that's a special one. So talk to me, maybe how has their plastic evolved and how it can kind of help you in your game? Have you seen any difference from the old plastic to the new plastic?
1: I mean, of course, there's going to be different things, but um, some of them being different in a good way and some of them being different in another way. Like, for example... Uh, we have the FD3. And the FD3 made by Innova, they had this problem where they couldn't really make them, like, stupid, stupid flat. And, like, the very first FD3 that they came out of the machine from Discmania was, like, board flat and super stiff. And it's, like, everything I've been looking for in FD3. So sometimes the new plastic just hits it just right and it's like, wow, this, this is now exactly what I've always wanted it to be. Straight in the bag. And other times, like, the the DD3s last year, they came out with the C-Line, but they weren't as overstable as the prototype C-Line. So what I stick to now is the uh, Cloudbreaker 3 because those were a little more domey, a little more overstable. But, like, with this mania, we still have, like, we're trying to catch up with the production and stuff like that. So, like, where the Cloudbreaker 3 was made a while ago, I, would like, stocked up. But the Horizon Cloudbreaker is supposed to be i mean i I, i've thrown a couple of them but for the people who haven't got to throw them they're supposed to be that very very domey distance driver like a overstable slot that everybody's looking for and obviously the horizon plastic just looks super awesome but hopefully making like whenever so like i was saying with the cloudbreaker 3 that was like a one-time run hopefully what we're figuring out is going to be making slots to keep them permanently in that slot
0: Yeah, okay. I That, that kind of makes sense. And, and definitely those new Cloudbreakers look really good. I told it myself is. stop buying discs, but I'm definitely going to have to splurge on that one. Yeah. And something that kind of comes to mind when I think of Discmania is I think of like the originals. And you know I think of, kind of like you said, the FD3. I think of the DD3. Mm-hmm. I think FD. of uh, FD yep. is a great one. MD3 is another one. And then I see the other discs on the other end of the spectrum, I see like the splice or David. the genius or the astronaut yeah. or the, uh, I can't remember. It's like a 13 speed. enigma. It, like, Oh, I do love the Enigma. That one's good. Okay, cool, uh, cool. No trash talk from me on the Enigma, but th- all those other discs that just seem like a complete pivot from what Discmania has always been. Do you find yourself really using any of those discs or is that more for the, amateur newer player to have an introduction to Discmania's plastic so that they can move up to those originals.
1: So I say that the active line is exactly what you're describing there I call it like the Discmania value brand like you want to throw Discmania but maybe you don't have the arm for the Eagle McMahon Signature Series Cloudbreaker or you don't have the wallet that you don't have like that kind of budget in a disc golf because you only own one disc why do you need another disc and why does it have to cost three times more than the one I have. You know what I mean? So the active lines, like, okay, I've heard about this mania. Let me check it out. It's like, you're whatever. Sometimes people fall in love with that disc and then they are like, oh, like, let me explore the brand more. But it didn't cost me much to get into it. So I'm more inclined where like somebody can buy, uh, whatever, a $30 disc from X company and be like, well, that just sucked for me. I'm not going to buy another one. You know what I mean? So I feel like we're just kind of offering, uh, a different, a different player, different needs, where we're offering Eagle's number one fan the best disc they can get, and it's in Eagle's bag, but we're also offering the brand-new disc offer an affordable disc disc choice that also might be user-friendly as far as flight. But the Evolution line is... I wouldn't put it in the same category. The Evolution line is definitely its own thing. It's just, I think, with the machines... So, like, like, before made by Innova... And then we branched off to Latitude, but now we have our originals made by ourselves. What we're capable of making in the Evolution plastic with the Latitude machine is like, sometimes it's really, really flat, like in the putter plastic. And it's just a, it's more of a flexibility thing, I think, that we're able to take our discs and make them in not just one or two different types of plastic. But since we have this other one, we have more plastics to offer and it's just kind of like a, a family tree that keeps on growing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Have you kind of noticed that maybe in the marketing materials, or you know, I'm not exactly sure how Discmania maybe comes to you at the beginning of the season, and says, "Hey, this is maybe our plan for how we want you to market the discs this year." I feel like I don't, you know, like we talked about, don't see a lot of those newer player discs in your bag, okay. and I would say, I mean, probably your target market isn't necessarily brand-new players, it's probably people who've been around yep. a little bit who are more willing to buy Signature Series discs. And one that kind of comes to mind is, like, the Tilt, for example. I mean, we've seen you throw incredible shots with the Tilt, and so so I want to ask, first off, is the Tilt still in your bag? Do you have a use for it? Because I feel like a year two or years ago we saw a lot of discmania players have the tilt in their bag and mm-hmm. then i feel like maybe simon kind of put it away and then everyone else kind of started to put it away and maybe some other discs kind of like the splice or you know the new fd3s where it kind of took its place a little bit to where it was obsolete like what what is your standpoint on the tilt i, I mean i was looking at your youtube channel yep. i saw the other day you uh you and the bear had uh the tilt battle it's got like a hundred and almost forty thousand views on it right now i mean like
1: like talk to me a little bit about this magical disc so i mean the tilt when when simon had the idea the whole thing was basically to just make a borderline stupid disc like almost useless like literally just like the dumbest thing he just wanted he wasn't gonna make the disc that tells you what you want to hear and say, oh, this is going to be the farthest flying disc you've ever thrown. I swear to you. Like, that's what everybody tries to do. That's what everybody says. So he's like, well, I'm not going to try and do anything that anybody's tried to do before. I'm going to make a disc that's never been made before. And really, with the whole marketing question, like, it's not like they ever asked or anybody asked me to market the tilt in any way. I just felt so strongly about, like, the fact that like Simon did it for that reason and I took it upon myself to like combat the the banter of like oh what are you going to do with that thing no pro will ever use it in a tournament this and that so like just hearing people say no pro will ever use it in a tournament I'm like well I'm going to use it in a tournament and I'm going to get birdies with it so basically the way I see it now the where this tilt stands for my bag is it has a use it's very specific and it's situational the way i see it the the less i have to use a tilt that means the better i'm doing off the tee and yeah that's fair and it very it depends on the course like i'm not going to bring the tilt to Emporia country because at no point will i ever end up in a spot that i can't throw a different overstable disc in my bag to get the job done but at a course like Northwood Black or Brewster Ridge or even like Idlewild like you run into weird spots and also courses like Jonesboro where you need the 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 over-the-top shot like you you're going to be pinched off on a corner and it's always going to just go up and down so it really is like in and out of the bag depending on the course but at the same time at this point with the tilt I'm kind of at the point where it's like well if you're going to throw it you better throw it well so (laughs) <laughs> that's kind of where i that that's where i bet mentally battle myself on choosing whether or not to throw the till
0: yeah that's definitely one where i feel like if you pull it out and it doesn't go uh-huh. well you're you gonna just... get the blowback oh, of oh here we yeah, go yeah. Trying to make the tilt work. <laughs> I get that. I, I I feel like I haven't been like as much on social media as the bear has been about you know his love of the tilt yeah. and throwing it all the time. I would say I'm, I'm pretty up there in that I have, am a big fanboy of the tilt. Love throwing it. I don't care what situation I'm in. Uh, if it's a bad one, we can definitely use the tilt to get out of it. For me, I had a shot. I'm not going to say it was similar to yours on – camera but it was one that it was pretty much straight up and down but it was probably 150 maybe a little bit further out i mean i was completely under this tree and i just said the basket is an elevated pin and i was like it's got to be up there somewhere and i threw it it didn't hit any chains it just fell right in the basket yeah yeah And and i literally dunked it in there and the car just went nuts i couldn't see it i the only spot i had after i threw it i crouched down in this one opening of the tree and I could just I was trying to see where it was going to land to see where my putt was and I just heard the yes, the basket yeah. and I was like oh that sucks I probably hit the cage That was probably really cool and then they're like you just made that and then I was like just heart bumping just absolutely losing it and then three would be on the next hole yeah. but you know it happens I guess but yeah I mean I I think that's an awesome disc I really liked your your Thought on it and how it can be useful, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, really like that. And and so I want to transition now a little bit to your personal brand, your YouTube channel, your Instagram. I know the first time that we had you on the show, you were kind of maybe in the spot that we were now. You know, in between five ten thousand followers on on the Instagram. Now you're over thirty thousand followers on the Instagram, twenty two thousand subscribers on YouTube. Talk to me a little bit about how that growth happened for you so quickly. Like was there one moment that really kind of accelerated it at you know, when you were about at this point, like what really shot you off in a rocket ship?
1: Um, I feel like right before we had our interview in twenty twenty, that was like right when I started to break off from like just following along with Simon and I started to travel a little bit more on my own and I actually started to dabble a little bit more into making my own YouTube videos as well. Like I started with my in the bag and then it transitioned into just like this and that of like casual round vlog or, you know, building my van. And you know, like I felt like I can't deny that the spotlight that Simon gave me just kind of gave me that great foundation. And however Mm. I wanted to build that foundation was up to me and what I did afterwards. Like he put me on the map, he made me noticed but like I you can be noticed and forgotten if you don't keep at it so like you know as soon as I got that foundation that was when I sent it full-time hit the road went on tour and then I happened to go out on tour and start playing the best golf of my life and I find myself on lead card and Texas States and then chase card at Jonesboro and then I've hit the tilt shot and make it on Sports Center, and it was just like kind of this like crazy storm of like wow this guy that's on Simon's videos is not just a guy in the video. He's one of the best players in the world right now. And then it was almost like at that point in my career, like it was just like the perfect storm. Like I was just like in the right spot in my game at the right time of the year where like my arm was still fresh and we were still like, I was still like really hungry to get out there. Then as the year dragged on, like the fire just kind of burnt out. And like I said before, like I was playing courses that didn't really excite me as much and, just didn't really feel like I had the best chance to compete as I did on the other courses and it's not nothing to really blame but then I started to really kind of look into more like okay like clearly you're not you're not staying in the top 10 every single weekend like you were for those couple months so like you know you can obviously get better but you can work at other things because like say you you say you just keep on being the player that you are right now so let's make sure uh, my brand is good. And my Instagram, I feel like my Instagram has always been on like a steady incline, but my YouTube is the one that took a big, big incline recently. And it wasn't until February of 2022, when I just started to hit the road for the new season, I had trouble with my YouTube channel to the point that it was like so frustrating to edit that I was like, not even wanting to film videos just because if i film and i can't upload it then what's the point point? and it was just like really really bothering me and my buddy broderick had me talk to him about my issues and he said well we can work out a deal where i can be your editor and you can just send me the clips and you can film as many videos as you want while you're on tour and you know you can just pay me to edit your videos and we've been working out that deal very very well ever since and you know, I had been on a very steady incline, making my way up the ranks and getting that subscriber count up, and started to make some decent money. And then it wasn't until after this past off season, I did Vlogmas, which wasn't—I'm gonna say it was a push. I'm gonna call it a push. I didn't like super, super succeed, but I didn't fail. And I took a month off after Vlogmas. And then the first video I posted after vlogging this was me against Simon with his new bag. And that video has almost 150,000 views Mm -hmm. now. And I gained like 6,000 subscribers in a week. It was like pretty insane, actually. Not not 6,000, but it was still like... And it it was an insurmountable number of subscribers for a very short period of time. And every video since then has just kind of been riding that wave.
0: Yeah, and... So with you having an editor, I I can only imagine that makes making content so much more freeing. Oh, it's so fun. Yeah. And so, like, I guess talk to me a little bit about that. Do you have any say in how he chops up the video? Or is it like, hey, I recorded this. This is my basic
1: idea. Do your magic. I trust you. So uh, Broderick has been my friend for about four years now. And he has always been like a creator of some kind. Like he started a podcast and he used to do like TikToks and Instagram reels. And then like, he would even do like his own YouTube channel back, back before he like got into the whole editing thing for me and more into the disc golf side. But once we got the, the deal where I would send him the videos, I would say like, Hey, this is what I film. And like, I'm kind of thinking like this and that And he's like, okay, cool. And then, like, he'd chop it up. I'd watch it over and be like, yeah, that's good. And then, like, you know, the next one, maybe there was, like, oh, I want to make sure that this one moment is, like, projected out and, like, very important. He's like, all right, like, chalk it up, post the video. And then eventually, like, just those little tidbits here and there, he was just able to kind of formulate the exact product that I was trying to present. And now every single video I send him, it's a whole load of clips. And the way I tell people is, like, he like broderick my editor he gave my videos the identity that they have right now like if they if you think that my youtube videos are funny it's because of broderick like yeah i might say something that's funny but he just does these little tidbits of like 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 one second reactions that'll make you laugh or like the way that he zooms in and just just like him and i as a team like i just give him the ammunition and he he loads the gun you know what i mean Like it's, it's really a a really good teamwork thing where I'm able to be energetic and having a good time on the course. And then I give him the clips and he's able to create a masterpiece of comedy and fun disc golf and like good conversation. And it's a, it's a really good thing we got going.
0: Yeah. And I I can only see it in the videos, being free, being able to just do it, not having all that extra stress on top obviously it's going to make it a lot more fun for you do you have any kind of like deadlines consistency lines for him where it's like hey i have to put this out every single monday like oh man we got to get something this week or you know we're going to lose count here or take me through your philosophy on
1: how and when why you decide
0: to record and just kind of the structure
1: around it so um our original structure was we strive to do four vlogs a month which is one a week essentially not every time i can do one a week so you know Four months turns into four every five weeks, and then like a couple months go by, and then you're you've kind of skipped a couple weeks, and now you're you're you've created whatever three months worth of vlogs and four months, and it's it's nothing to to major, nothing to get all upset about. Just like it's just the way life goes. Maybe I can't film a vlog that week, and that's how it goes. But since the Simon video. Uh, I, I hit the algorithm at the right time, started to get the recommendations that I needed. And that's when we started to say, all right, we need to keep this consistent. There's no months off this time around. This is, this is the upward trajectory and I don't want to fall off. So we've been keeping it once a week and you know, sometimes I'll go a tournament week. Like I remember in Waco, I wasn't able to film the week before the tournament. So the Monday after the tournament, we filmed at a little nine hole. I send it over to him and I say, hey, man, can you get this out by you know tomorrow night? And He's like, you got it. So sometimes I do say like, hey, I didn't film this one as early as I would have liked. Do you think we can expedite it? And he, he's always on it.
0: That's awesome. That's yeah that's really cool and and so how valuable would you say the YouTube and Instagram is to your brand I mean all these new players coming into the into the tour and just into disc golf mm-hmm. in general a question that we'll get a lot is well I want to get sponsored and a common response from us is you have to have brand mm-hmm. notoriety mm-hmm. if you want to be sponsored because otherwise you're just another person you know yelling into the void hey buy this plastic or buy this product how valuable has your growth in your youtube and instagram been to uh maybe outside partnerships
1: i um i would say that i i cared about my instagram following only because like that was like my eyes on my on my sponsorship right firsthand like oh how many people know who he is you know i mean but the thing with the Instagram is like I was never really trying to do anything I mean I remember in 2020 I was trying to post every other day but it's not like I was like oh my god I have to post today like I was just telling my story of my life every other day and I was filling it in for the last two days and if what I did that day was play a course then I took pictures at the course and I would post them all about the course and how much I loved it and I just felt like with my Instagram was like a very natural documentation of my life where the YouTube is really where I've been able to take off on like the more marketable side and like build a fan base. And there are player, there are people that watch my YouTube that probably don't follow me on Instagram, but I, I would say that my Instagram is more so like, like I said, it's, it's more like just like a portfolio of my travels. And the people that want to follow along, they, they follow me. But at the same time, they don't have to follow me. If they Like, they could also just be, like, a fan of the Disc Golf Pro Tour and they know who I am, but they don't follow me. You know what I mean?
0: hmm Yeah. Where the people who so subscribe st- to my
1: YouTube are here to stay in a way, if you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah.
0: hmm Yeah. And that kind of leads me to, like, how do you continue to build that YouTube because I feel like the Instagram is good for you just personally but I feel for brand notoriety, potential deals down the line, just growing your overall income really. I feel like the YouTube is the really place to be hammering out the content. Is that kind of how you see it? Like that's your main focus for, you know, those things and and what's your 5-year plan for that?
1: I mean, absolutely. Yeah. As far as any social media is concerned, where my YouTube has started to been able to, uh, like take off, it is definitely my number one priority over like Instagram or Facebook or whatever. But my five-year plan, I mean, man, a lot of people have asked me my five-year plan for disc golf, my five-year plan for YouTube, my five-year plan for life you know i mean what kind of vehicle i'm going to be living in if i don't live in a vehicle like i don't really think that far in the future like i i really just kind of plan to the end of the year and then like i know all the tournaments i'm going to play and i know that along the way i'm just going to keep on filling my youtube videos and we're just going to ride the wave that's really really all i all i know is like if i have momentum i'm going to keep it riding and i'm not going to get too far ahead of myself but i'm also not going to let it go to waste
0: Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And, and, uh, you know, I, I think that that's a pretty good headspace to be in, you know, just really, I feel as though that might, you know, help a little bit with burnout, you know, constantly on the road, constantly playing disc golf. If you just have the plan for till the end of the year, it's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Get here, reassess what Mm -hmm. we're doing. Maybe what we're doing now isn't wrong. And you're allowed to kind of change those mental models instead of just being like, well, we're stuck doing this and for year and a half, two, three, mm-hmm. four years because we're just sleepwalking through the motions. So, yeah, that's definitely very insightful for sure. And before we kind of wrap up this episode, something I did want to touch on, and we talked a little bit beforehand while structuring this, was the versatility of your disc golf game. You know, you told me that you feel as though you're really good in a ton of different situations being able to uh, adapt your game to kind of what the course needs and I feel like we talked about that a little bit with the mental game and we talked about that a little bit with the woods kind of courses you know maybe hitting the gap here throwing the tilt out of this shot to get up to the basket hit, hitting 50 foot death plots. what would you say to someone who's just kind of getting into disc golf you know I think if you want to have that versatility in your game you kind of have to be a somewhat consistent disc golfer mm-hmm. to start so how would you go Go about telling a new player how to get
1: consistent in disc golf. I've learned a lot of my skills from watching people who are really good at doing things that I am not really good at. So, for example, Simon was the perfect person to teach me how to throw an understable disc and make it hyzer. Simon's the best player in the world at taking a disc that's meant to do one job, say it's an overstable disc, and he'll make it do non overstable things and like he's also really good at taking an understable disc that's only meant to roll over and he'll throw it on a hyzer and like just really exposing yourself to other players who are capable of other things can open your eyes to say that is possible like take notes of how they do it and obviously you have to do trial and error with yourself learn your learn your game learn your learn your discs in that way and also when you're practicing something that i've been trying to do recently is when i started as a pro my strengths were backhand hyzer and forehand anti-flex and like forehand hyzer was possible but not a strength and backhand anti-hyzer was possible but only if i was like max distance in a wide open field where Now that I've recognized those as weaknesses, I've looked at the players who are the best at those specific shots and tried to emulate that game. And then when I go to play a practice round and say, it's a hole that has a straight shot available, uh, a flick shot and a backhand hyzer shot, I'll throw a a straight shot with a putter because that's one of my weakest parts of my game. And then I'll throw like a, a forehand turnover and then I'll throw a backhand turnover. Like to, to not so much just take like, oh yeah, let me just do that overstable play, but let me challenge myself because if I'm not preparing for a tournament on that particular course at that time, I'm trying to explore new avenues almost and like refine the parts of my game that maybe aren't as uh, uh, yeah as used on the, the tournament, like in a, in a tournament round.
0: Yeah, I really liked kind of how you mentioned the word challenge. And it makes me think about not, not being comfortable in your disc golf game. If you want to be a consistent disc golfer, if you want to be well-rounded, you almost need to force yourself to be in uncomfortable situations. Is kind of what I'm getting from yep, you, right? Exactly,
1: exactly. If you don't ever – yeah, if you don't force yourself to throw the shot that you're not comfortable with, when you find yourself faced with that in a tournament and it is your only option, are you going to be happy that you're not comfortable with it? No, you'd rather be like, Oh, I'm going to park this shot.
0: Yeah, true. And so that kind of tells me if you're one of those listeners who you only have time to maybe do field work once a mm-hmm. month, once a week, whatever it is, or, or you just go play the same local course cause you don't have 10 different courses in your area. If you're playing that one course, you should, the next time you go out there, throw shots that you wouldn't normally do you know maybe instead of throwing that backhand hyzer do a forehand Mm -hmm. or something like Mm -hmm. that or or even you know so changing up your shot selections is it also
1: worth changing up your discs and maybe just taking a new bag out with you um i wouldn't say so i'm a big advocate for taking one disc and making it do a lot of different things so i recently have started to work on the weakest part of my game previously which was standstill backhand. If you were to ask me, as long as I have been a professional since 2017, what is the weakest part of my game? Every single time my answer would be standstill backhand. But now I have identified that as a weakness so much to the point that I have dedicated myself to mastering it. And now almost like wanting to be the standstill guy because of how much I've worked on it. And how much I love to throw it that now I want to be recognized as like the guy who throws a standstill on blank hole. And I want to throw it on coverage and I want to throw it in front of other people and all that stuff. And all that stuff feeds into me wanting to do it to the point that I'm literally keeping a birdie percentage this season of how many standstill backhands I'm throwing off the tee and how many birdies I'm getting per attempt. Hmm. What
0: What have you noticed so far? Statistic wise, so
1: I have noticed that I am missing putts if I'm not birding. So like, I am throwing the mm. standstills very, very well, and if I don't birdie, it's because I missed a putt. And like, sure, you could say, "Oh well, maybe I shouldn't have put it closer." Yeah, but at the same time, I still put it within you know 50 feet, and and I didn't make it. So like, there there's something to be proud of as far as the result of the throw. I I I can let that slide, but. The, the thing really being is like some of these holes on tour, for an example, uh, in Waco, hole five is just an uphill mid-range shot. And everybody, every single year, would just throw that shot with ease. But for me, I'm not comfortable throwing a putter really hard, but if I really throw a mid-range, I'm going way too far. So my in-between that I found this year was standstill mid-range. And I can rip it as hard as I want, and it's the perfect speed control so basically it's like that that it fills the gap in my in my bag where if i go really really hard fairway driver or really really hard mid-range maybe the fairway driver i can hit the gap but it's going to go way too far but i'm not as comfortable in the full power mid-range so let me just go stand still with the fairway driver and Mm, i I just did it in tallahassee this past weekend actually
0: and that was a very good tournament yep. for you, I believe. Uh third, third place. place podium finish at Tallahassee, yeah. I mean, I feel so. that is a sign of good things to come for you the rest of this year, getting on that podium, breaking through, having a really solid finish. I know that's got to feel good. Casey, this has been a fantastic interview. Have loved getting to learn more from you during this time. Where can people follow you on Instagram, YouTube, anywhere
1: else that hey, you want to Hey, me up on Instagram, Casey White 4 My YouTube is Casey White disc Golf, and otherwise, just follow the Pro Tour, subscribe to your favorite disc golfers, and just keep watching live disc golf doesn't get any better
0: yeah agreed live disc golf is the way of the future i couldn't agree more casey white thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the chain clankers disc golf podcast and we will see you guys next week